Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. The U.S. military is a constantly evolving organization, and one of the areas where we've seen significant change is with regard to the integration of women into the armed forces. Of course, women have been associated with militaries for as long as we have recorded history, and they have served in integral roles in the U.S. military since the Revolutionary War. But more recently, all of the roles in the Army have been opened up for qualified women. And so today we want to talk about the history of integrating women into the U.S. Army, and we're going to do that by thinking about the story through one woman's perspective. And so I'm pleased to have in the studio today Major General Retired Jessica Wright. Major General Wright served in the U.S. Army from 1975 to 2010 and retired as the Adjutant General of Pennsylvania. She then served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness from 2013 to 2015. So Jessica, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. And so I'm, I'm so happy to have you here. We had you here at Carlisle for Women's History Month, and of course it's now past March, but I think we can talk about women any time of the year that we, that we want to. So I'd like to start by asking you about your background, um, your sort of biography, and maybe why you decided to join the Army. I grew up in a very small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, my parents were um, both working. My dad was uh, uh, worked in the uh, bar as a bartender and and in the steel mills, and my mother was a nurse. So I grew up kind of in a blue collar family. So I was the first person in our family to go to college. Um, after college, I became a waitress, which was not on my dad's uh, agenda of things to be. So the reason I joined the army. Because he said, you know, I really didn't uh, plan on you being a waitress after college. I'd really like you to do something. And he knew people in the military, in the Pennsylvania National Guard. And I joined the Guard with the understanding. I enlisted as a private in the Women's Army Corps with the understanding to stay to say six years for an enlistment. Mm-hmm. So six years <clears throat> turned into an entire career and the move from private to major general. That's a, it's a pretty stunning um, advancement and, and move. Can you talk to us a little bit about the challenges, but also the opportunities that you had in the, in the army and how you sort of managed those? Well, first it was the women's army corps, but then soon after I joined, they integrated the women's army corps into the rest of the army. So we competed for some assignments because women were not allowed to hold all of the military occupational specialties or be an officer in several different branches that men were. So we competed for different assignments. I had the luxury of applying for and going to be an Army aviator. So that was one of the opportunities that I took that kind of propelled me to the next step. Mm -hmm. So when you decided to, I guess, go into the aviation branch, what did that What did that mean for you in terms of of the career opportunities that 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 opened up? 
Well, frankly, they um, they still had a lot of the very traditional roles for women, and they opened up aviation. So when I graduated from flight school and I was able to now wear those wings, it said something a little bit about me that was different than perhaps um, the other women that weren't wearing the mm-hmm. wings. And so those opportunities um, opened up. But I will tell you, they wouldn't have opened up without people taking a chance on me. Um, and they, there were four people um, that continue to be wonderful friends that helped me when I got back from flight school. So can you tell me a little bit more about the, the, the four people or, or what people did to, to take those chances? Well, what did that look like? It was, well... Um, when I first got back from flight school, there was this unwritten rule that because I was the only female, I was supposed to fly with an instructor pilot. But it was unwritten, and it wasn't a rule for the men. These four individuals, Jerry Burton, Cecil Hangenfeld, um, uh, Philip Spence, and Maynard Brandt, they all were combat aviators. Three of them flew in Vietnam, um, and they taught me how to fly. So they they took a chance. They gave me the opportunity. And because they had so much uh, respect in the unit, then it was better. It was easier for me to kind of integrate into the unit. Mm-hmm. So really having champions and mentors is, is really critical. I think that's probably a critical piece of most military careers throughout. It is, it is key. But it's important to know that they don't have to look like you to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the of the challenges that came along with being a woman in the Army, um, especially maybe in those early, early years with the transition from the Women's Army Corps to the regular Army? Well, because now we were integrating into positions that women didn't necessarily hold. Um, that was difficult because of the, the, the men that were in the positions weren't used to you being there. The females weren't used to you being there. So I met this one gentleman when I became the battalion S1. He was a crusty old uh, E7, a sergeant first class. But I will tell you, he had an impact on my career that was just monumental. His name was Sergeant Al Minsky. And to this day, He is a good friend. Mm -hmm. So learning from him and learning to hone some leadership skills at that very young age was very important. Um, Another challenge was we didn't have the programs that we have now. If you had a problem with sexual assault or drinking or uh, drug abuse or any of those social kind of programs that we have, in the 70s and early 80s, they weren't as prevalent or as well-known as we have now for the men and women Mm -hmm. in the military. Sure. When you talk about the leadership um, lessons that you learned as a young officer, especially, um, and then throughout your career, and you think about the people who helped you learn those, um, what are some of the, I guess, most important lessons about leadership that you that you learned throughout your service? The first one is take care of soldiers, not take care of female soldiers. Take care of soldiers, um, even if it's one soldier at a time. And that, that doesn't mean make everybody happy. That means make sure that you, um, the men and women you lead, understand what they're supposed to do and that you roll up your sleeves and you do it with them. Um, Learning to write is a leadership skill. Um, Learning to speak in public is a leadership skill. And also having a sense of humor because, and not taking yourself um, important. Take your job important, but not yourself. Mm -hmm. 
So what are the, what are the ways that you, that you learn those? Are those lessons that you learned over time? Are there specific moments that you sort of remember where those became crystallized to you? Most often when you learn something, you learn it the hard way (laughs) because (laughs) you you have either made a mistake or you have done something that is not a hundred percent correct. And so you learn from those experiences. And I will tell you, my husband has a saying and he says, no man is no man is worthless. They can always be used as a bad example. So you learn from good people and you learn from those mm-hmm. that you don't want to emulate. Absolutely. Um, I, when I was reading about your, your bio and your career, um, there's lots of times where you're mentioned as the first uh, woman to do something, the first X or Y or Z, that uh, a sort of path-breaking career. Do you think those are, are those important moments to you to consider sort of personally when you think about yourself and and the career that you had? Honestly, I didn't even think about it until my son did a project when he was in high school, and it was called Conflict and Consequences, and he used me as an example. And after he made this picture board, that's when I realized that, yes, I did some things that were a little bit different, and at times I was the first, but it to me, it's more important what I represent. I represent that, that women and men can do whatever you choose to do if you have the ability and you put your mind to mm-hmm. it. And so when you think, I guess, retrospectively, um, how, do you, how do you feel now that we're sort of seeing another wave of firsts, I guess, right? The first women to graduate from ranger school, the first women uh, to command infantry companies and things like that. Honestly, I think it is good. Not everybody will want to do that like everybody did not want to become an aviator. But they have paved the way for individuals to do it should they choose. And those individuals will stand on the shoulders of those people that went first. And I will tell you, I stand on the shoulders of those World War II pilots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, right? like we said in the introduction, women have been around military services organizations, um, the women who flew in World War II, these are some really amazing stories. And so some of the firsts are just because of structural reasons, right? Absolutely. There's no reason that someone earlier couldn't have done the same um, and didn't in in many ways serve the the same functions. You've talked a little bit already about some of the changes, one of them being the increase in sort of social programs and in the support for soldiers um, who need help with various things in their personal lives. Can you talk a little bit more over again over the, the course of a long career? What are some of the most important changes that you saw within the Army? So one I one that I find very interesting is when I joined, I was in the Women's Army Corps, and you could only hold very specific traditional women roles. When I finished as the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, I helped write the letter for Secretary Hagel, or excuse me, Secretary Panetta, and then ultimately Secretary Carter is the one that kind of put the put the yay verily on it um, when he was the Secretary of Defense that allowed all of the positions in the military to be open up to mm-hmm. women. And so that my career spans when we couldn't do much to when we can do everything. Yeah. Um, and that to me is just an amazing 
um, an amazing 30-some years. Yeah, that story is a really interesting one in how that happens um, politically, socially, culturally, uh, and all of all of that. When it comes to, to other sort of changes, is the Army of 2010... Uh, was it a was it a fundamentally different place from the army in 1975? It's hugely different, absolutely. Um, I th- I think that you know I, I keep going back to the traditional roles and and that's what we were in 1975. Um, and and now in 2000, well in 2010, I mean a female would have never been the adjutant general of, of Pennsylvania, and there were other female adjutants general. Um, the uh, when I commanded a brigade, I was I was the first maneuver brigade commander in the military. Today, it's commonplace mm-hmm. for a female to command a brigade, and that is hugely important because it's all about leadership. It's not about gender. Sure. What are the um, What are the ways that you sort of worked with soldiers at at different levels, um, maybe to to ease the integration of women? Uh, into into these units did you have challenges with people when you took on leadership responsibilities or different roles or were the first um how do you deal with the sort of crusty the crusty guys who aren't used to seeing someone who looks like you at the front of a formation well first I will be honest with you the brigade command that I had was probably my hardest job Mm -hmm. because it was clear that they did not want me there and it was clear that I was selected to be the brigade commander. So it was tough going. Um, I, I go back to taking care of soldiers. I go back to not having a personal agenda, to being there to make sure the unit does well, and to treat everyone fairly, which may not be equally. Um, I really believe that um, you need to start at the bottom and listen to them because they're the people doing the very hard work for you at the top. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're hugely important. But that was my hardest assignment. Did you have as you as you moved throughout your career, did you have um, and and you talked a little bit about early mentors, did you have mentors, men or women uh, inside the military or outside who you could use as a sounding board or to give you advice? What does mentorship look like as you progress through the ranks? I never said to somebody, would you be a mentor of mine? I just kind of fell into um, individuals that would help me. So I had all male mentors only because I was doing things that was not a female role. Mm-hmm. I ha- certainly had a couple of good female friends. The person that um, impacted me the most was my mother. She she was a mentor. She had to work her whole life um, because we needed it. And uh, she taught me that you could do anything, but you also have to be willing and able and credentialed to do it. Mm-hmm. So by the end of your military career, you're the Adjutant General of Pennsylvania. Um, you move on from that job, like you said, to the Undersecretary of Defense uh, for personnel and readiness. Those are, are two very sort of high-level, strategic-level um, leadership jobs. So I'd like to talk a little bit about about those. First, to ask just what were the most interesting um, parts of those jobs? So I will talk, first start with the AG position. They call it the TAG. Um, 
that was during the height of the war. We were deploying a lot of people from Pennsylvania. It was also during Katrina, and it was during several uh, state emergencies. So allocating soldiers, completing missions, making sure people were trained up, and also the the part where it's an extremely emotional part is those individuals that don't come back from war, mm-hmm. your KIAs. Um, I got to know the families. That was the most... Uh, that was probably the hardest thing for me to do, but yet I was honored to be there for the people that needed us to be there. So that was very difficult, um, but also um, just an an amazing part of the job. Mm -hmm. Were there things in your career or in your training or education that you felt prepared you well to take on that job as the tag? Well, I think you build on that and you, you know, everywhere you go, you learn more leadership skills. Um, I'm a very organized person. My mother says she doesn't know where I got that. (laughs) Um, And I I think my organization level and the fact that I am a people person really helped me during that period of time because you needed to be those things in order to uh, get through those years of 2004 to 2010. Really challenging period for the for the army and for the national guard in particular is their their op tempo is mm-hmm. extraordinarily high um and then what about as the usd for personnel and and readiness what was the most interesting part of that job everything <laughs> and i <laughs> no boring honest, day. Uh, yeah no there was no boring day you always had a calendar but you never did what was on it i was very fortunate i worked for three three secretaries of defense each one of them different but wonderful um, we did everything from personnel issues um, to voting to commissaries to all the health care in the military. So it was a wide gamut of uh, responsibilities. 32,000 people work in that um, in that undersecretary directorate. That doesn't mean I commanded 30,000 <laughs> or 30,000 people. It means that I had some phenomenal individuals that worked with me and made me look good every day um you but you had to be a crystal ball juggler to get through the day because you were holding people's lives in your hand not literally as in they weren't right there but everything that I touched was a a person's name was associated with that Mm -hmm. dealing with congress was a daily event um educating the white house and, uh, and Congress was a daily event because everybody has an idea of who we are and what we do. And those, that educational sort of task is, I think, a, a, real, a real challenge. It's when we talk a lot about here at the War College, right, about how do you communicate with the civilian masters of both Congress and the executive branch. Um, let's talk about sort of what the challenges in those two jobs were. So both as the tag, and you talked a little bit about this, about the difficulty um, of, of managing and understanding and dealing with um, the personnel who were, who were killed. Um, what were some of the other challenges that you faced as the adjutant general for Pennsylvania? I think one of the big challenges is getting your soldiers ready to go to war. And that's not because they're not good soldiers. It is because this is kind of a new thing. It was back then a new thing for our army. And we had um, a, a, a good coordinated effort with 
in my instance, first army, but we also had to prove ourselves um, with with big army. Then you know there, it is sad to admit, but there is sometime a little bit of a rough edge between the active component and the reserve mm-hmm. component. I think it's gotten much better and much more respected, and we can truly do our job but getting the proper equipment you know getting them mobilized getting all of the things that they needed sometimes the money and and things like that the logistics didn't flow as quick as you needed them to flow sure and then what about um as the in the usd role what was the biggest challenge there at that point in time when i was the usd sexual harassment and sexual assault prevention was one of the most monumental challenges because um, some of the uh, members of Congress wanted to take um, the UCMJ authority away from the commanders if somebody had been proven to to have assaulted or harassed someone. And we just did not, we in the department did not want that to happen because a commander needs that authority in order to command. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge challenge. Sure, and I think it's it's one that's on ongoing. I, I don't know that we've resolved uh, resolved the the problems that we certainly are keeping talking about them and, and trying things mm-hmm. trying things out. Um, I'd like to sort of wrap up our conversation. I've I've learned a, a lot already, but I'd like for you to just give you an opportunity um, to maybe give some advice to current uh, war college students or even. Uh, to more junior officers who are sort of coming up through the ranks, um, if you could, if you could talk to them directly and, and give them some words of wisdom, what might those be? I would first tell them that to take every opportunity that comes your way, um, because some people wait for large opportunities, and sometimes that little small opportunity will propel you to the next step. I will tell. I I also believe they should be just outstanding leaders. I think our army has a small problem with toxic leaders, and that's not who we are. We need to lead our soldiers um, with kindness, but that doesn't mean weakness. And um, we also need to not take our problems home. Our home life, whether you are married or single, is a very important part of who you are. My mom told me when she comes home from work or when she came home from work, she would get out of the car and put her troubles on a trouble tree. And it was a a fiction, um, an imaginary tree Mm -hmm. outside our home. And then she'd come in and she would leave her her work troubles out there. And then when she would go to work the next morning, she'd pick up her work troubles. But she tried really hard not to bring those troubles home to her family. And I think our families... Um, sometimes get shortchanged. So I would tell any enlisted or officer or warrant officer, pay attention to your families because nobody is going to say they were a great soldier on your tombstone. They're going to talk about your family. Sure. So what are the, we hear a lot about balance, about work-life balance or whatever you want to say. Are there, are there, the trouble tree might be one, one way to do it. Are there other are there other ways that, um, especially officers, as they become more senior, as they gain more responsibilities and those work troubles um, maybe grow, right, in the iPhone 
and the blackberries never go away. Are there are there particular ways that our students or senior officers might do that? So if you look from 1977 to when I finished my career, the electronic age took over, mm-hmm. and you now deal with multiple inboxes instead of the paper one on your desk, right. uh, or the wooden one full of paper on your desk. You also... Um, uh, I think, and I don't, I say this with love in my heart, you know, my father, as great as he was, was not as participatory as fathers um, and mothers are today. Um, so I tell all soldiers, primarily women, because those are the ones that ask me, can you have it both? Can you be a mom and can you be a soldier? And my answer is yes, you can. You just may not be able to have it all on the same day. So you might have to order pizza some days instead of making a home-cooked dinner, um, but you can have it all because there are some some soldiers that think that maybe they can't be fulfilled to be a mom or be a good soldier, and you mm-hmm. can. You really can. Yeah. There was just a study today that said pizza is more <laughs> nutritious than breakfast cereal, so <laughs> feed your kids pizza for breakfast too. It'll be fine. Um, Jessica, thanks so much for joining me uh, today. It's been a really great conversation. I thank you for your time and for your insight and for your service. Dr. Witt, it has been phenomenal, so thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So we're signing off from the War Room. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.